We're looking, uh, continuing with Paul's argument. We'd reached uh, chapter 3, verse 20, and now we, we turn to verse 21. Now, it was in August 2009 that the Justice Secretary, Kenny McCaskill, took the decision to release from Greenock Prison Abdel Basset Al Magrahi, or you might know him better as the Lockerbie Bomber. The decision was, of course, made on compassionate grounds. Uh, Magrahi was, at the time, dying of cancer, um, and it was told to McCaskill that he didn't have long to live. When the decision was announced, there were those who said it was the right thing to do, and there were those who said it was a mistake, notably the U.S. president of the time, Barack Obama. The issue was, of course, is it just or is it right to release a man, even if he is dying, uh, when he has been convicted and found guilty in a court of murdering all those people? Is it right to let him go free from prison when the law says he is guilty? McCaskill at the time said this, Our justice system demands that judgment be imposed, but compassion be available. Now, I'm not going to discuss whether it was right or wrong. That's for you to decide. Uh, but it does give us a good example, actually, of the dilemma that we come to in chapter 3, this specific section from 21 to 31 uh, in Paul's argument. Remember, we've seen that Paul has been arguing from basically chapter 1, verse 18, the whole way through to now, that uh, people, Jew and Gentile, moral or immoral, religious or non-religious, are all under sin. And that we all face God's judgment. There's no special pleading for any group. Each one is condemned for each one knows something of God but fails to live up to it. All are high on principle but low on performance when it comes to the law. But if this is the case that all people sin uh, and God is just, then that means that God must punish all people, everyone. Nobody can escape his condemnation, for everyone has sinned. That's what Paul has been saying. But we, of course, we know as Christians that God does forgive sinners. Does, God does acquit the guilty. But how? That's, that's the point here. How could this possibly be? God is just. God is holy. Uh, you know, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, says John. How can God just forgive those who are so obviously guilty? Is it just the fact that God forgives everyone? Is that God's job? Is that what he does? But what possible justice is there in that? For that would mean that all those nasty people like Hitler and Stalin and the leader of the BNP would all have to be forgiven as well. So then that would lead us to conclude that that God doesn't judge anyone. But that's the very opposite, of course, of what Paul has been arguing in Romans, isn't it? God does judge people. Um, and would also leave us, and it would also leave us without any hope of justice at all if God didn't judge. Or maybe um, another possibility would be that there's a hierarchy of sins. And God obviously looks at Hitler and Stalin as being very bad and would never forgive them. But he looks at others like you and me and we're not that bad. And well, maybe 
He can let us off with it. Maybe it's the case that as long as I don't do anyone any harm or don't murder anyone, I will be okay. But how do you know? Therein lies the problem. What is, good enough, what is a good enough standard for God if we start measuring it? Where do we draw the line between what is acceptable to God and what is not acceptable to God? How much sin can I possibly do before it is unacceptable? You see, many people just want to say, well, I'm, I'm a good person, not so bad. But if you go down that road, well, that's, this is what it means. You don't know. You don't know if you're acceptable to God or not. Where can we draw the line? You can't just think that in the end we'll be able to sort something out, me and God. We'll be okay when the time comes. That's not the way it really works. For Paul has already told us, nobody is good enough for God. The standard he has set is too high. Nobody can possibly live up to that standard. And so that leaves us all in trouble. Big, big trouble. For we saw the last time that all attempts to gain a righteousness, that is, attempt to make ourselves right with God by keeping the law or by being moral, are utterly useless because we can't. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, says Paul. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You see, all, all the systems and Reason want to, and our reason want to be able to, to put right what is wrong, don't we? So you know if something is wrong, it needs to be put right. And we want to make amends when we do something wrong. It's only natural. So uh, if I were to say, Chris, can I borrow your glasses? And I take them up here, I drop them on the ground, and I, and I crush them. And then I go to Chris and I go, Chris, uh, there's your glasses, uh, really sorry. And then Chris obviously will say, well, okay, I'm glad you're sorry, but what are you going to do about it? You know, my glasses are in mush. I need my glasses. Do something. And you automatically want to make amends. You want to, to put it right. Now, politically, of course, our, our society tries this by education. When something is wrong, what's wrong is we need more education. If people are sufficiently educated, then they will not break the rules. They will be good, moral, upright citizens. And we will be able to build our vision of uh, heaven right here on earth. But of course, that's not really the way it works, is it? For the better educated people become, the more ways they invent of breaking the, breaking the rules. It's not that education isn't necessary, that's not what I'm saying, but education will not put right what is wrong with society. And on a personal level, all of us understand to some degree that if we're in debt to God, because, of what we've, because we've done something wrong, we should be able to put it right by something we do. All religions in the world work on that, a principle of that same kind. We do something and it makes God happy. So God isn't angry with us anymore. But Paul is saying that that isn't possible. He says there is no one righteous. Rather that. The Psalms say, there was no one righteous, no, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see, now we have the two dilemmas that we come to in this, in this passage. First dilemma, how can we as human beings possibly be freed from our, sent, from our sentence of judgment, a just sentence of judgment, if we cannot put it right ourselves? If we can't do it, how can we possibly put it right? 
The second thing is how can God forgive the guilty and still remain just and still remain good? Or in other words, how can God keep his holy integrity? And this is what Paul turns to in in verses 21 through 31. Uh, Please follow along. And he begins in verse 21, but now, but now. And he is drawing a deliberate contrast with all that he has said before in verses 118 to 320, those sections. Now after Christ has come, now in this age of grace, in this year of the Lord's favor, as Jesus himself called it, there is a change. Something is different. Something has come as a way to make men right with God. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Remember back to chapter 1 verse 16 and 17. Paul was talking about him not being ashamed of the gospel for in it our righteousness from God is revealed. He here now returns to that theme that he is is expounding. And after explaining why this righteousness is needed, he now turns to explain how it's possible for us. It has been made known apart from the law. That is, it doesn't come to us by law-keeping, as we've seen. It doesn't come to us by trying to be good people. It comes to us in a totally other way. It comes to us by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by keeping the law of God or by living up to some high moral standard, but simply through faith. That is trust. Faith is not some sort of of leap in the dark or belief in what we know ain't true. It is simply trust. Trust like you trusted that chair you sat down on when you came in. That it holds your weight. So far, everybody's okay. So this righteousness that comes, it comes through trusting Jesus Christ. Not by works or by effort or by our, uh, of our own, but by faith in someone else and what that someone else has done. But how is it possible? How can we be put right with God by trusting someone else? How can we be made right with God and not have to do anything to earn it? Surely that's... Surely that cannot be. That's far too scandalous a thing. After all, nothing's for free, is it? Too good to be true, obviously. But that's what Paul is saying here. We are put right with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. There is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Everybody is in the same boat. We all fall short of what God expects, yet God out of his grace, as a free gift, justifies us. Now this is the first word in this section that we need to be, we need explained. And Paul is going to use several words in this passage. And once we understand them, what looks quite complicated actually is very, very simple. God justifies us. That is, he declares us just. The Greek word used here uh, is a, are translations of two sets of English words, essentially. Those English words being justified or justification, that group of words, uh, and the other ones being righteous or righteousness, etc., etc. They both mean really the same thing. To be justified is to be righteous. And this is, of course, legal language. 
language of the law courts. God declares us to be right with him. Like a judge, once he makes a verdict and declares someone not guilty, that's it. It's a verdict, an acquittal, a status that then belongs to us, for we are just. A bit like a marriage. Once uh, the minister or whoever is doing the ceremony says the words, I now pronounce you man and wife, that's it. It's a declaration. It's a legal status that you are married. As far as the law concerned, you are married. You're not more married on Monday than you were on Friday. You are married as far as the law is concerned. God declares us to be righteous before him as if we had done nothing wrong simply out of his grace. We did not earn this gift of righteousness. We did not deserve to get it because we should have rightly been judged and found guilty. It is all the doing of God. We are guilty, but God pronounces us not guilty when we have faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul continues, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So here's our second word, which helps us understand what God does. This is redemption, this word is used here. We are made righteous because of the redemption that came by Jesus. Now this word redemption comes from the language of a slave market of the time. So first century Palestine, first century Roman Empire, the ancient times, slaves were of course bought and sold. And if a slave was, be, slave was to be taken out of slavery, then he had to be bought out of it. There was a cost that someone had to pay in order for that slave to have his freedom. So Paul uses this language to help us see that God has redeemed us. He has purchased us out of slavery. We were all slaves to sin and slaves to its consequences. The wages of sin is death. And therefore we should be justly punished, but God has redeemed us by paying a debt that we owed. God set us free and declared us to be righteous through Jesus Christ, and that's what he does. The idea would have been very well understood to uh, the Jews of the day because they would have remembered it from their history. Um, They were in bondage, of course, slavery in Egypt, and God rescued them, or rather he redeemed them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, an outstretched arm. But more particularly, they would have also thought of being delivered from the judgment at the first Passover. Remember that story. They were redeemed by the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. uh, And the angel of death literally passed over their houses, delivering them from the, the judgment of God on the firstborn. And so Paul here uses this same idea to help us understand that we are delivered from his judgment, God's righteous judgment, by means of a very costly sacrifice, that of Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity who became a man and died in order for us to be redeemed from the consequences of sin. He paid the price that was due for our sins. And so the debt that we owed What we owed to God was cancelled, taken away. We were acquitted, set free to be made right with God. It's like um, you got a speeding fine. 
and you know that you were speeding, you were found guilty, one of the hairdryers got you uh, on the way through, Dun- through Dundee or something, you get the, the ticket through the post, you go to court, and you find there in court as you walk in, someone has already paid your fine. So that means you don't have to pay it again. It's all sorted, it's done, it's paid for. The debt no longer needs to be paid. It's gone. Somebody has paid it for you. And that brings us to the next word that Paul uses here to show how this price was paid and how the debt was cancelled. He says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now, uh, the phrase in the NIV, sacrifice of atonement, is a translation of one Greek word. If you look at your footnote, on your Bible, you should see it there. Uh, a more literal translation of the word, the one who turned aside his wrath. Uh, the old version, of course, used the word propitiation. And it's in that, this way that Jesus provides for us forgiveness. He, for he is the one who turns aside the wrath of God from us. Remember, of course, we have seen uh, that Paul has been telling us that God's wrath has been revealed from heaven against all the wickedness and godliness of, godlessness of men. And this is happening in the present and will ultimately happen finally in the future on Judgment Day when all will have to give account for what they have done. And this is, of course, at this point, we are, we're reaching the very heart of, of the gospel, the gospel of God, where God sent Christ to be the one who would be punished in our place for the wrong that we have done. And so Jesus cancels the debt, redeems us out of slavery from sin and its punishment by taking the punishment himself. On the cross, Jesus was suffering God's righteous wrath for our sin. And so because God has punished our sin, we will not be punished again. It's been paid for. It's gone. Jesus became sin for us, says Paul, and in him, as we have faith in him, we and what he has done, we become the righteousness, that word again, righteousness of God. God declares that we are right with him and free from guilt. All by his grace. There's no one who deserves it. None who have earned it. It's only possible by faith in his blood, says Paul. That is, of course, blood referring to his death. Again, the idea of propitiation. That idea comes from the Old Testament sacrificial system, where the high priest once a year would come, confess the sins of the people over the the sacrificial goat's head, and this goat would be sacrificed to make atonement, to put right what was wrong for the people. Thus, The wrath of God was turned aside and the people were freed from guilt and the punishment they should have received. It's a bit like um, the lightning rod on the the tower of a church. I'm thinking about that church in Broadway Ferry at the minute where it didn't work. But but it should work. There's a lightning rod on the the spire of the church. There's one on this church. And what should happen is if the lightning strikes the church, it strikes the lightning rod and it goes right down that into the ground and has dissipated So everybody in the building is safe. So that Jesus becomes like the lightning rod. God's wrath goes to him. 
and we are safe. The wrath of God is turned aside. So the people are freed from guilt and the punishment that they should have received. And we see that that then is our first dilemma now solved, isn't it? We couldn't provide atonement for ourselves. We couldn't put it right ourselves. We couldn't do enough to provide ourselves with a righteousness that was good enough for God. But in the gospel, God has provided us, provided us with a righteousness. A perfect righteousness. That is through faith in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. A great example of this, of course, is the movie that came out a few years ago. Uh, by, based on the book by Ian McEwan, Atonement. If you've ever seen that, fantastic movie. Um, where the main character in, in, the, in the movie sees something that she doesn't understand. And she's very young and she gets someone who is innocent into a whole lot of trouble. And as the years pass, she begins to understand what she's done wrong. Uh, but she can't put it right. The person in question, the, the persons in question all die. And there's no way of her fixing the problem. What she has done wrong can't be put right. No way of atoning for what she did wrong. And this is what she had to live with for the rest of her life. And of course, McEwen, as far as I'm aware, is an atheist. For him, there can't be any atonement. There's no such thing. So that girl in the story was burdened with the guilt of what she'd done all her life. But for Christians, there is an atonement. Although we know we are guilty of sin and of rebellion against God, we understand that we are declared righteous through faith in Christ. No longer do we have to bear the burden of guilt and worry of judgment. Rather, we trust God's promises and rest on what Christ has done, which gives us, of course, that assurance of pardon, transforms our entire lives. For there's no more trying to earn our righteousness, for we already have it in Christ. But then we come to the second dilemma. We see it solves our dilemma, but it also solves God's dilemma. For, for how can God forgive the guilty? If we all deserve punishment, if we all don't live up to God's standard, then we rightly all should be judged and found guilty and put into hell. Well, the answer, of course, lies in the fact that God has still punished our rebellion and our sin. He has followed through with his justice. The sword of God's justice has still fallen and has given our sins what they justly and rightly deserve. But rather than punishing us, he has punished somebody else in our place. Jesus, the righteous one. God sent Christ to be our substitute. The one who would stand in our place, suffer the penalty that we should have suffered. And so God can forgive us and set us free and still be just for his wrath that has been revealed is appeased and is satisfied. Because it fell on Christ. Paul says he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. And here's the key phrase, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 
So God remains true to himself. And we receive the benefits of his love as those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So the two major problems that we look at are now solved. And God is just and the one who is merciful to sinners. You see, this provided the perfect solution. It's not a matter of just letting God, of God just letting people off the hook. There was a real cost involved in providing us with our not guilty verdict. Jesus had to die for you to have that. And, his, and he died for your sin and my sin so that all who believe in him, that trust in his death, can be forgiven. You see, it might, it might sound incredibly arrogant to say it, and that's not my intention, but please let, allow me to spell this out in the simplest way I possibly can. I, Brian Key, when I die, I'm absolutely certain that I will go to heaven. Am I arrogant for saying that? Yet, I can tell you, I know that I am a sinner. I am as guilty as anybody. I'm not perfect. I've done wrong things. I've done things I'm very ashamed of in my life. Things that I would be incredibly embarrassed about if any of you found out. You see, I can be a sinner, yet know I'm going to heaven because I trust in Jesus Christ. He died for me. He turned aside God's wrath for me. He redeemed me. I am righteous in God's sight. I am not guilty. And I know that on the day I stand before God in judgment, I will not be found guilty. And that, that, my friends, is the reality of the wonderful truth of the gospel. It's not about me or my abilities to be good or moral. It's all about Jesus Christ and what he has done in suffering for me and for you. It's about God giving me a righteous status that I cannot get myself. You see, that's how we experience God's righteousness in the gospel. Through the cross of Jesus, we receive it. We live in it all the days of our life. And my friends, you can experience it today too. And I hope you have. For it's for all who believe. It's all of faith. It's available to everyone who will trust in Christ alone and what he has done. And so as Paul points out to us, the implication, of course, is that means there's no boasting possible. There's no hierarchy of people. Nobody is better than anyone else. There can be no looking down on anyone in the Christian church. For we have all uh, are the same. We're all forgiven sinners in the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by keeping the law or by being better than other people, but by faith in the Christ who died for us. You see, if I return to the beginning again, you see, that is why our society is doomed to failure if we try and change people by more education. For all the education in the world will not make us righteous. All the education in the world will not fix the basic problem that all human beings everywhere have. That they are under God's wrath and that they will be found guilty outside of Jesus Christ. You see, if we desire a revolution in our nation. It does not begin in the universities. It does not begin in the schools or even in the parliaments or anywhere else. It begins in our hearts. 
It begins with us confessing our sin before a holy and just creator and bound before him in humble recognition that we cannot save ourselves, that we need him to intervene and make us righteous through faith in his son. For my friends, without his justice, if there is no justice, if there is no judgment, then we are lost in a world of evil and of malice that doesn't bear thinking about. Yet without his mercy and love, we are lost under his holy anger and judgment to which there is no escape. And that's why the gospel is so revolutionary, so powerful to change lives and turn people around. For God provides us with with forgiveness, a great cost to himself, but totally free for us. Let me finish by quoting, of course, a very old and very famous hymn, Rock of Ages, written by Augustus Toplady, what a great name, in 1776, as he was traveling through the countryside, uh, he ran into a big storm and a large rock which had been cleft. Uh, he found a large rock which had been cleft and he crawled into it and he hid himself from the storm outside. And as he reflected on, on that, he found it was a good analogy, a good analogy of the gospel of Christ. For we are hidden from the storm of God's wrath in the cleft of the rock. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood, speaking of his death, from thy wounded side which flowed, be of sin a double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Make me righteous. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. That's what Paul has been telling us. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And then, of course, in his last verse, he draws out the ultimate implications of it all. While I draw my fleeting breath, while mine eyelids shall close in death, when I, die, when I soar to worlds unknown as when I die, when I see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. You see, it is from cradle to grave that we need Christ to cleft for us and let us hide ourselves in him. That is the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for revealing to us your righteousness, that righteousness that is by faith from first to last. 
And that comes in the person and through Jesus Christ to us. Lord, we know that we do not deserve to be declared righteous in your sight, for we have sinned and fallen short of what you expect of us as your creatures. We have not kept your commandments. We have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. We have rebelled and we are unrighteous. And yet, Lord, as we turn and can contemplate your gospel, as we look trustingly to your Son, as we rest in his sacrifice, his sacrifice on our behalf, we know, Lord, that you make the guilty righteous, that you change us, that you see us through Jesus Christ, not as we really are. Thank you so much for the gospel. Help us, Lord, in, the, in our weakness, in our sinfulness, in our constant rebellion, to always turn to that gospel promise that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That even if we do sin, we know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins and not just ours, but for the whole world. Thank you for this great promise. Help us to rest in it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.